number 12. And so I was asking the Lord what he would have us to do, where he would have us to go in these seven weeks. And I felt that the Lord pointed us to an Old Testament book. Are you scared already? An Old Testament minor prophet book called Amos. Now, if you're like most Christians, the only Amos you know is famous Amos. Um, and that's, uh, that's partially why I want to do this study, because I think it's good to consciously work on our Bible literacy together. There ought not be big chunks of Scripture of which you just write off and say, I have no idea what that means, and just sort of live with that. That's not good. So that's, that's one reason we're working on this. But another is, um, I think that this is going to be an extremely relevant book to us today, because the time in which Amos lived is not very different than the time we live today. So I often like to start uh, sermons with a question, so I'm going to do that today. How many of you have seen or at least know the plot of the classic 1939 movie, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington? Anybody? All right, young people, y'all need to step it up a little bit on the classics. I'm just going to let you know. Uh, it is a classic, one of Jimmy Stewart's first big roles. You probably know him from It's a Wonderful Life. But Mr. Smith Goes to Washington came out first. It established him as sort of the everyman character. You know, that sort of all shucks, everybody knows and likes this guy. He's just, that's his role. He does it so well. He expertly played the all-American man, the normal guy who simply stood for truth, tried his hardest, and believed what he said. So the plot of that movie really is simple. Through an unexpected death of a senator in his state, Jefferson Smith is appointed as the new senator by, uh, to Congress by the governor, primarily because the kids of the governor knew him as the Boy Ranger leader in their troop. So the plot of this movie, uh, if I just boil it down, is that the earnest Mr. Smith quickly discovers, shock, Washington is corrupt. It's a corrupt political machine. Uh, while he was just trying to author a simple bill for the Boy Rangers for some land, he uncovers a corrupt deal and then is blamed for it and then caught and embroiled in a scandal that he did not do. And so the, the machine turns against the innocent outsider. So the climax of the movie, you can find this part on YouTube if you're like, hey, look, I just wanted the five-minute scene. Okay, this is on YouTube where Mr. Smith decides to take a 25-hour filibuster where he not only argues for his own innocence, but extols the virtues of what American ideals are supposed to be and what government is supposed to be. Quite honestly, it is a classic scene in all of movie history. He goes until he just faints and passes out. So it is a, it is a great, uh, I mean, you might even shed a patriotic tear. I don't know. It's very good. But the cultural significance of this movie has reverberated throughout the years. And the point is that it should not be impossible for an everyman to become a senator or to get involved in government at all. The machine should not be so corrupt that your average Joe or your Mr. Smith could not make a difference. That's the crux of the movie. Now I want to use that as a jumping off point today for our series because Amos the prophet was no prophet at all. He was an everyman who did what God called him to do and stood on the truth of God's word. In fact, Mr. Smith and Amos are alike in that way and in this as well. Their lives were going fine, living a quiet, moral life with purpose, enjoying it, but the call came for the everyman to step up and answer. And Amos said yes. So here's where I want to go today. The Lord can and will call out anyone to accomplish his purposes. Yes, even you. 
armed with the truth of God's word, anyone can make a difference in the world and glorify God. And so I want us to be thinking about these things today. Is the Lord calling you to rise up, step up, and engage his calling? Do you need more boldness of the Spirit of God to do what God has called you to do? Does the Lord have a task for you? That's what I hope that we see in this introductory message in Amos today. So if you would, before we read the word, pray with me. Our Father, would you help us today correctly see and interpret your word? And Lord, would it find a lodging place in our hearts? Do a work here, Lord. Call somebody out. Shake somebody up. That's what we came for. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Amos 1. Amos 1. If you need the table of contents, let me just tell you, there's no shame in that game. All right? Remember, one of the goals is to help us flex these muscles that we often uh, let go neglected. So uh, if you love history and context, you're going to love today's message. So who, who in a message really, really likes the historical contextual stuff with a raise of a hand? Okay. How many of you say, I honestly tolerate it to get to the good stuff? Anybody else? Okay. Yeah, a little bit of both. All right. So just so you know, it's, it's good in an introductory message to a new book to be a little context heavy. So it's not always going to be this historical, but we need to give you some. And so I'm going to move quickly. And uh, I would just say this is a good time to plug. If I move too fast and there's some facts and, and numbers and dates that you miss, uh, we do have podcasts and we put this on YouTube for that very reason so that you can go back and, uh, and double check your notes. So we are ready for point number one, lest I get too creative. I thought it wise to keep it simple, stupid. So number one is the context of Amos. That's right. The context of Amos. Don't worry, it gets better from here. Read Amos 1.1 with me. The words of Amos, who was among the shepherds of Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. Okay, so these little hints, though they don't seem like much, do help us to place Amos in a historical context. Notice two kings mentioned. What are they? What's the first one? I can't. What? Okay, Uzziah and Jeroboam. Now keep in mind, there's two Jeroboams in the Bible. This is the second one. That's why it says son of Joash. So if you write Jeroboam, write those two little Roman numerals, Jeroboam the second. All right? So we now know the time frame. Um, so what I want to do is share a timeline of how things got here. Because what I found, especially when I, when I teach... Um, Bible history, is that many Christians never understand why we got to this point where there was an Israel and a Judah. Um, you know, if you're a casual Bible reader, you see Israel all over your Bible, then at some point you see Israel and Judah, and then at some point there's Samaria, and then in Jesus' life it seems like it's kind of different and you just don't really know how that happened. So let me give you a little bit on that as a run-up that maybe you've never gotten before. So originally there were how many tribes of Israel? Twelve tribes, okay, and they were named for the sons of Jacob. The sons of Jacob's names are the tribe names. So Reuben, Simeon, Judah, Benjamin, etc. There's 12 of them. When they add, had to put a loose name around all the tribes, that name was Israel. Uh, mostly early on, it was family-related. It was bloodlines. It was genealogies. Now, Moses brought them out of slavery. Joshua brought them into the promised land. 
And then each tribe got their own little portion of land, except the Levites who did not get a portion of land. They got the temple stuff. So the tribes all existed, but now they had a geography, and they were scattered all across the land in their tribes. When David became king, especially in the David-Solomon era, there was a building of a temple in Jerusalem. That's when they got their capital city. Okay, So if you read back before David and the judges and in Joshua and Moses, you're not going to hear the word Jerusalem. That's because it wasn't a capital city for them yet. Um, so that was established as the capital, and it was in the south. Okay, so uh, this word Israel at this time really meant a lot. This was the closest they were to a united kingdom, okay, in the days of David and Solomon. Sometime, by the way, this is around the year 1000 BC, just keeping it real round for you, all right? When things went wrong, you're probably thinking, all right, sounds good. Where did the things go bad? Here's where things went bad. The handoff from Solomon to his son. That's where things did the old splitteroo, okay? So I can't give the full story. It's too much. I will just say, if you want to read that story, it is in 1 Kings 11, if you want to write that down. 1 Kings 11. Rehoboam was the son of Solomon who was supposed to be the heir. And uh, what you need to know is that Rehoboam was Solomon's heir, and he ruled in the south, but there was a revolt led by Jeroboam in the north. And so only the two southern tribes of Judah and Benjamin went south and, and made Judah. So Judah was the bigger tribe. Benjamin was a smaller tribe. So they took the name Judah, and they got, while there were only two tribes, they got the capital. They got the temple, the big temple. And the other ten tribes revolted and went with the revolt, and they went north, and that was with Jeroboam the king. And that's all the other ten tribes other than Judah and Benjamin were there. So the south called themselves Judah. The north called themselves Israel. You following? We together? You, you awake? All right. So what you need to know is generally, generally, well, no, this one's not generally. The northern kingdom was evil pretty much the whole time. The northern kingdom and their kings were pretty much universally bad from the beginning because they were founded with evil in their founding. Jeroboam himself was a bad king. Idolatry slipped in early and often, all right? And, and they never recovered until they got destroyed by the Assyrians. The south was good, depending on how you count it, about half the time. So the the number of kings that were good versus bad are similar. However, the good kings in the south ruled for longer. So you had a handful of kings like Asa, Uzziah, and Hezekiah who had long tenures. So there was a lot of good spread out, even though they were just three kings. So uh, there was negative and positive in the south, about half and half, we'll say. So scholars ballpark the division of the kingdoms. When did that split happen? Somewhere around 930 B.C., Things would go on like this until the northern kingdom of Israel was destroyed and taken captive by who? The Assyrians, okay? Remember, north was taken by the Assyrians, south was taken by the Babylonians. Now, that was later. The first one was the Assyrians in the north, second captivity was Babylonians in the south. So, the north had about a 200-year run of, of existing before Assyria came. The south had about a 350-year run before the Babylonians came in 586 B.C. All right, that's just history. That's just to get your mind in the mood. All right, you're there. Now, back to Amos. Amos lived 
in the 700s BC. Specifically, we can narrow it down because of those kings mentioned and the earthquake mentioned in the beginning um, to the decade of 760. I've seen 765, I've seen 762, depending on who you read, so I'm just going to tell you the 760s BC. Both kings mentioned, Uzziah and Jeroboam, were ruling at the time. Uh, they are well documented historically, and also there are earthquakes that are found in this decade. So this seems really solid to place them historically in the 760s. Um, these are long-tenured kings. So uh, there are a lot of kings that ruled for two years, one year, you know, Tippy Canoe and Tyler too, in and out, all right? But some kings lasted a really long time. These were they. Uzziah was probably 50 years in office, if, you're, if you go the longest date. And Jeroboam II could have been in office for 40 years. So Amos, at this time, was a contemporary of other prophets as well. So it, at this time, it's believed Jonah was likely going up to do his thing in Nineveh. So this was happening at the same time as Jonah, which probably caused the Assyrian uh, invasion to be held back longer. Because remember, they repented. They repented up there when Jonah went. So that pushed back that timeline. Hosea was also beginning his prophetic ministry at this time. And if you wait about 20 years, Micah and Isaiah start their ministry down south. All right. So it is possible Amos was the first writing prophet that we have, uh, even though, you know, Elijah existed. And if you call Samuel a prophet, and if you call Moses a prophet, they were around. But for what we call prophets, Amos was very early. Now, probably the most important piece of context I give you before we move on to the text more is this. This really affected my little subtitle. In every series, I try to give you a little subtitle. Amos, colon, remaining faithful in prosperity. Now, that's really important. Though the Assyrians were coming, we know historically in 40 years they were coming to wreak havoc on Israel, this present time was really materially prosperous for Israel. Uh, there was a stable king, Jeroboam II, and though he was not at all godly, hear me, not at all godly, he was good at his job in a physical sense. Jeroboam was a gifted military leader, gifted political leader. He had reclaimed lots of lost land that Israel had ceded over the years. He got it back. The borders were restored. The economy was booming. However, some of that was due to forced labor and upper class taking advantage of the lower class, bringing in slavery and, and debt slaves and all sorts of bad things, which Amos is going to preach about. But from 30,000 feet, times were bountiful. Uh, people had multiple homes. Enemies were far off. The temples were full. The wine was a-flowing. But it was in this material prosperity that the people of Israel did what was so easy to do and what we struggle with even today in times of prosperity, and that is to forget the very God who gave you everything you have. The core message of this series is that what you do in times of prosperity, with your prosperity, in the eyes of God, will determine the length of your prosperity. God gives abundance to his people at times, to be a blessing to others and to expand the kingdom with that blessing. But if we use God's blessings for evil or for apathy or for insulation of self or for comfort, we will see in Amos what God thinks about that. 
So that's the context. Number one, the context of Amos. On to the next point. I want to show you number two, the classic arguments. Now, if you like parentheses, you can put against preaching in parentheses there so you know what I'm talking about. I'll give you more details in a second. The classic arguments against preaching or prophecy. We're going to look at Amos 7 in a moment. So the reason I'm going to take us, I'm going to jump past all these chapters and go to Amos 7 in our intro message is that it contains very helpful biographical information about Amos that you don't get in chapter 1. So what we're going to read in Amos 7 is a confrontation between Amos and Amaziah, the high priest of Bethel, which is in in Israel. That's a northern territory. So we don't know when this happened chronologically. It could have been later in his ministry. I like to think it was a little earlier based on the conversation they were having. But Amaziah is going to charge Amos to stop preaching what he's preaching. Well, that's something we're familiar with. We've seen that even in the book of Acts. And I think you're going to see what Amaziah the priest says to stop preaching are classic arguments that we see being used right now by those in our culture to encourage you to stop preaching. So, read with me Amos 7, 10 through 13. Amos 7, 10. Then Amaziah, the priest of Bethel, sent to Jeroboam, king of Israel, saying, Amos has conspired against you in the midst of the house of Israel. The land is not able to bear all his words. For thus Amos has said, Jeroboam shall die by the sword, and Israel must go into exile away from his land. And Amaziah said to Amos, O seer, go, flee to the land of Judah, and eat bread there, and prophesy there, but never again prophesy at Bethel, for it is the king's sanctuary, and it is a temple of the kingdom. All right, so at this point, Amos has already been prophesying, all right? He's already been preaching it by this point. The message of Amos is out there at, the, at this time. And you can tell, was it a particularly sugary, sweet, cotton candy, inspirational message? Is that the kind of response you usually get from, God just loves everybody? Is that really, is that what happens? No, that's not usually the response. So it was, as we will see next week, A message of judgment coming to Israel. And guess what? In 40 years, it did come. He named names. Amos said, Jeroboam will die by the sword. That was the prosperous king who led them into riches and expansion. It was not a popular message to call for the death of the long-tenured king who ushered in material prosperity for the upper class. Still not popular to do that, is it? The high priest of Bethel, A religious man, a priest in the house of God, enters into the picture. Amaziah shows up. We'll see uh, first a correspondence between Amaziah and the king Jeroboam, and then a confrontation between Amaziah and Amos, which I think offers us really three, I can see three arguments against his preaching that I think we see right now in our lives. I'm betting that when a man or a woman of God today speaks the truth in some way in our culture, you're going to hear these critiques. All right, let me tell you what they are, what I see. First critique against Amos' preaching, number one, you're meddling in politics. You're getting into politics now, Amos. Have you ever tried to address something in life that you truly believe to be a biblical issue, and you were met with a response of, oh, you're just trying to be political? Has that ever happened to you? 
That's an easy way to dismiss what you're saying, isn't it? Because, well, we aren't politicians, and so therefore we can dismiss one another by saying, you're not a politician. Stop talking. Look at verse 10. Let me show you where I see that. Verse 10 says, Then Amaziah, the priest of Bethel, sent to Jeroboam, king of Israel, saying, here it is, Amos has conspired against you in the midst of the house of Israel. Two interesting things in that, packed into that. Why would a priest be snitching to the king about a theological matter? It's because he did not see this as one prophet to another talking theology, talking God's law. He saw it as treason and conspiracy. How do I know that? The, the word Hebrew word in verse 10 means to tie up and form a conspiracy. There it is. Amos showed up and he preached. What did he preach? Hey, guys, we got to stop the idol worship. Got to get the idols out of the temples. We got to stop oppressing the poor. We got to stop selling the poor into slavery for debt so that we can buy bigger houses. It's got to stop. We got to stop pretending like we care about God with these big temples, but then we go live privately debased lives. Got to stop. And if you don't stop, God's going to send Israel into exile. That was the message. That's Amos in a nutshell. And Amaziah heard that not as a theological statement, but rather a political coup against the king. Rather than consider the points of the critique, it's labeled treason. Now, in the days of David, a prophet could criticize a king or a priest. Samuel did, didn't he? What did he say to Saul? You ain't going to be the king no more. That's what he said. What did Nathan say to David? You are the man. They understood in those days the order, the rank, when the fear of God is removed, however, kings refuse to be criticized even by God. The second interesting thing is that Amaziah says, Amos conspired against the king in the house of, look at your Bibles, what does it say? In the house of Israel. Verse 10 says he calls the temple the house of Israel. Now this shows you just how far they have fallen. The temple was always called the house of what? God was always called the house of God. And the weasel high priest has the nerve to call it the house of Israel. Now, I don't know if you know this, but the author actually made a funny here. Do you know what the Hebrew word for Bethel is? House of God. The literally word for Hebrew Bethel is house of God. So the high priest of Bethel calls the temple the house of Israel. That is poetic irony. Isn't it interesting how a spiritual critique can be interpreted as a political statement? This is a typical tool of the world that we see even today when prophetic voices speak out against moral issues that are facing us and their response is, the church is not supposed to talk about politics. We hear that. Abortion, oh, that's, that's a political issue. Marriage and gender, that's a political issue. Freedom of speech, freedom of religion, freedom of conscience, separation of church and state, that's a political issue. Who's the one that made everything political? Was that us? Did we do that? The culture did that. If the world wants, as they do, maybe you're noticing right now, things that used to not be political are becoming political. Have you noticed that? Bottles of syrup, okay? Think with me now. If literally everything becomes a political statement, and then they say the church can't talk politics, what does that mean? You can't talk. That's where this is going. Furthermore, it is not our job to defer 
to the culture's definition of what is and is not political, is it? Do we ask the world, what can we talk about today? Here's here's where you need to land, Christian. I say what God tells me to say and let the chips fall where they may. That's where we got to be. Don't stop talking about issues that you believe God wants you to talk about because someone else deems it to be political. That is a convenient tool for those who are afraid to speak the truth boldly. You know, you can just label uncomfortable topics as politics and make yourself morally superior feeling for avoiding it. But this is a powerful reminder to us. Once the world realizes that Christians are afraid to talk politics and we refuse to engage, they will soon label the gospel as politics. It will not take long. How long before the cross and the empty tomb and faith and repentance and eternal life become political statements to the world? And we have already conceded that we don't talk politics. And so, classic shutdown argument number one, oh, you're just talking politics. Number two, secondly, we see Amaziah employ another tactic called, you're being divisive. You're being divisive. Don't rock the boat. Maybe you like that one better. Look at the end of verse 10. What does Amaziah say? about the words, the land is not able to bear these words. We can't handle it anymore, Amos. you got to stop. Amaziah sends his little letter to King Jeroboam and says, Amos is preaching some punchy stuff down here. Things are getting hot. And I'm afraid that it's having an effect on the people. And I guarantee you, Amos's preaching was probably reaching some people. He was probably shaking some people. And so Amaziah pulls the card that we often hear today. Think of the damage that preaching like this will cause to the body. You heard that? There will come a time in your life, Christian, when you will have to determine whether you believe it's okay to say something that God has said, something that needs to be said, even if it upsets the status quo in your life and hurts relationships in your life. What was Amaziah the priest saying? If we, if we just say, what was the priest actually saying here? He was saying, it's better to live in sin if it's going to keep the peace. We hear that. That's the implication. Sure, you have a message from God, Amos. Sure, you're, you're going to lead us to our very salvation if we repent and believe this message. Sure, what you're saying is technically true, but we've got a good thing going down here, and we would prefer you to just leave us alone. A true priest of God, just like any true Christian, would welcome a shake-up if it is God's will. Would you? A true Christian doesn't mind collateral damage to their life as long as God's word is the thing doing the damage. If God wants to lay a sledgehammer to your worldview or to your comfort, or to your plans, or to your vices. You know what a spirit-filled Christian says? Come what may, Lord. Break me down so that you can build me back up. That's what a Christian says. Hurt me if you have to, but I'd rather be hurt and right with you. A false follower in priest clothing says, hey, 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 hey. The land can't handle words like this. This kind of a shakeup's not going to be good for the people. Give us something we can handle, Amos. Give us something that doesn't challenge us so much. 
Give us something that's remarkably like what we were already doing that would require nothing from us. But Amos says what every bold preacher and every bold church member has to say. I don't write the news. I just read it, and God has spoken. That's critique number two. That's political. You're being divisive. Thirdly, we see Amaziah breaking out the old trusty. Number three, you're just a preacher after people's money. You're just a preacher after people's money. Now, are there preachers and false prophets after your money? Sure are. Turn on TBN if you don't believe me. They're all over. The world has figured out, like Amaziah, that this critique is powerful because it is based in true examples that are real. And by the way, let me just say this. For every used car salesman slick TV preacher trying to sell your sweet grandmother another vial of holy water for sowing her seed of faith, offering $100 to Snake Oil Ministries, there are 100 other godly men preaching the word every week. Okay, just remember that there are a lot of bad examples, but there's even more good examples. That was for free. Look at Amos uh, 7, 12 through 13. Amaziah said to Amos, O seer, go, flee away to the land of Judah and eat bread there and prophesy there. But never again prophesy at Bethel, for it is the king's sanctuary, a temple of the kingdom. Now that phrase, eat bread there, that's the key to this whole point. The phrase is, uh, it's a Hebraism for making a living and eating by the work that you do. So if you have a job and you're a plumber, you make money off of uh, unclogging toilets and fixing pipes, you eat bread by plumbing, okay? You make money, you eat your food, you pay your bills by the thing that you do. That's what this phrase meant. Amaziah is saying, one slick prophet to another, if you're here for the tithe dollars in Bethel, you're in my territory, son. This is Bethel. I'm the prophet, priest, and king here. Go back to Judah and make your money prophesying to them. Don't come jingling your little tin cup up here for my profit dollars. Go find your own people to preach to for their money. And Amaziah was implying in this that Amos, like him, was a prophet for hire. There's a story of a prophet for hire in the Bible that you might want to read one day. It's called Balaam. And uh, it's a very interesting story. Will you say this prophecy if I pay you? That happens all the time. Anyway, that's another story. So Amos, he tells Amos to go back, make your living where you came from. You're out of territory. And this is such a powerful response that Amos gives to this. It's going to be our third point today. Let me give you point number three before we read it. Number three is the commoner's awakening. The commoner, common man, every man awakening. So now we're going to read Amos 7, 14 together. Then Amos answered and said to Amaziah, I was no prophet, nor a prophet's son, but I was a herdsman and a dresser of sycamore figs. But the Lord took me from following the flock, and the Lord said to me, Go prophesy to my people Israel. Now, therefore, hear the word of the Lord. You say, Do not prophesy against Israel, and do not preach against the house of Isaac. Therefore, thus says the Lord, Your wife shall be a prostitute in the city. Your sons and your daughters shall fall by the sword. Your land shall be divided up with a measuring line, and you yourself shall die in an unclean land. And Israel shall surely go into exile from its land. That didn't turn out very well, did it? So Amaziah says, 
hey, you're just a prophet looking for money. And Amos says, actually, actually, I'm a farmer. And I was doing pretty well, enjoying my life. I had enough money to live on. I'm good. But God called me to come and prophesy, and that's the reason I'm here. Isn't that powerful? Isn't that really powerful? You know, I wish I could say that. I've lost the point in my life where I can say this phrase to someone else. I don't own this zinger. You know why? Because I truly make my living from the church, from you guys. But you don't. You can say this in all honesty to anybody. You see, people will always see me as a preacher. Don't get me wrong. It has its perks. I wouldn't trade this standing opportunity to preach God's word with you for anything. But I will always have an expectation to say what I say because of who I am. But you, nobody can tell you that you're preaching for money. Nobody can call you a prophet for hire. When you say something is from God, there's no way that someone can just say, oh, that's just preacher talk. That's financially motivated. No one can say that about you. That's the power of Amos as a unique prophet in the Bible. He's an everyman. He's Mr. Smith goes to Washington. Verse 14, he says, I'm no prophet. I'm not even the son of a prophet. This isn't even the family business. Now, this hurts me bad because my dad actually is a pastor. All right? So what was Amos? A herdsman. That's a Hebrew word for, it's not shepherd. It's a Hebrew word for a livestock breeder. This was a man who owned the cattle. He owned the farm. Additionally, he was a dresser of sycamore figs. So not just livestock. He had fields. Study from this time revealed that uh, there was a process that, that uh, this unique word, dresser of figs, if you look at that Hebrew word, it literally means to slit the fig open. And you say, why would that be? They had found a process where the, the fig would ripen faster, grow larger, and get sweeter if they did this very specific cut to it. And so he was a guy that did that. And so this was not a slouch. This was a guy that knew what he was doing and ran a business. What does that matter? It matters because Amos did not need a side gig. He had plenty of money. His life was plenty busy on the farm he owned. And that's why he said that, because he was accused of being a prophet for hire. Now, when the accusation of money goes off the table, what do you have to do? Talk about the content of what was said. Now, I don't know if this does anything to your heart. Hearing that one of the prophets of the Bible, for all we can tell, untrained as a prophet, was actually a farmer that God called off the field and to go preach to the high priest of Bethel and call out one of the most prosperous kings in generations. Here's what I know, that that should be an encouragement to you as you seek to do the work of the Lord in your life. It should be an encouragement because the true credentials of a prophet are not the school he attended, the seminary training that he has, the money in his back pocket, the elite circles of society in which he circulates, the social status he achieves. No, the truest test of a prophet is whether or not he accurately handles the word of God and speaks truthfully of what God has said. 
The true test, listen, if you hear one thing today, listen to this. The true test of a prophet is whether thus says the Lord is his ministry. If that was true, then it is true today. Listen, God speaks through his prophets. There's no denying that. God feeds his church through his called preachers. Yes, the ones who listen to him and the ones who preach the word boldly, God speaks and convicts and calls for repentance through men of God who take the pulpit. Yes, amen, affirm. But never forget this. What starts in the pulpit cannot stay in the pulpit. This ain't Vegas up here, all right? It's got to get out. There needs to be a rise of the everyman, preaching and teaching and speaking the word of God all over this land. God called Amos to leave the farm, leave the livestock, leave the figs to get up and go preach. Not even for a full career. That's why this is so interesting. From all we know, it seems that Amos, when he did his job, went back home and kept working. He showed up, did what God told him to do for probably a year or two. God told him what to say, and he went back home. So, I want you to think on these questions as we close. What is a challenge that the Lord is putting on your heart to rise up and meet? Is there something that perhaps you have put off over and over and over again because you've used that phrase, oh, I'm not a pastor, I'm not a missionary, I'm not a pre- I don't preach. Has that kept you from rising up and meeting the calling that God has placed on your life? Perhaps like Amos, you see a path now to engage God's calling in a new way. Do you need that prophetic spirit of boldness on you? Remember, the Lord can and will call out anyone to accomplish his purposes. Armed with the truth of thus says the Lord, anyone can make a difference in this world and glorify God. Pray with me.